Well, good morning, all, and welcome to our fall session in Sunday School, ABF Together. <clears throat> We're going to start in 1 Kings 14, if you want to be locating that in your scriptures. But continuing with our theme, which has really been going on for about, what, three years, I think, now, in the fall semester, that all of life is the working out of faith, all of life. And the kings of Israel, the record that God gives to us of the kings, is captured in such a way that God is displaying day in and day out, year in and year out in the lives of his people, that faith is what he's looking for. And that's an amazing concept for us to to lay hold of because we sometimes evaluate our lives and say, I don't really have much to offer to the Lord. I don't have a lot of gifts. I don't have a lot of things. The Lord says, faith. Faith is what makes the difference between a good king and a bad king and a king that the Lord holds up for us to look at and say, he's worth imitating and one that he discredits and discards as useless. It had very little to do with the length of their reign or their military might or their intellectual prowess or any other thing, but rather faith was the basis of all of life. So let's pray and entrust ourselves to the Lord today as we see what he has for us. Father, we offer you a very halting and very weak faith. But like the nobleman who came to you in the New Testament and said, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. We believe, but help our unbelief. It is not the strength of our faith, but our, the glorious object of our faith in our Savior Jesus Christ that gives us any hope of life, any hope of spiritual life right now in the present and of a life to come. So I pray that you would add to your people a sense of purpose, a genuine sense of value that each one of us, uh, walking by faith, has real value in your sight. And thereby we can labor for you not out of a sense of um, striving to earn some kind of your favor, but rather because we have it. So bless us in our study this day. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Our plan, I know this is really small, but you know, charts are, tend to be small, but our plan here is this. We're in year three of a lesson from the lesser kings. So we, remember, we skipped David and Solomon and Saul and jumped right into Rehoboam and have been going uh, on since that time. But I hope to finish this semester. We have 16 uh, class periods together, unless provident, we are providentially hindered or, or raptured before then. Wouldn't that be glorious? This will take us from Jeroboam II in the northern kingdom through Zedekiah, the last king in the southern kingdom. And you can see kind of how the lessons are laid out today. I anticipate actually covering three kings. Jeroboam II. Oh, I should point this out. So here's our plan. Okay. Jeroboam II. Zechariah and Shalom are today. Some of the lessons are actually of people who are so significant. We'll have to do two lessons on one person. Today, the people are so insignificant, we can do one lesson on three. That's pretty nice. But there's some details to draw attention to. When we look at these kings flagged by Scripture as either evil or good, what stands out to you? 
There's a lot of evil. Fourteen evil kings. These are things that, again, God records about them. He did that which was evil in the sight of the Lord. He walked in the ways of Jeroboam, the son of Namath, that's Jeroboam the first, in which he made Israel to sin. Or he did even more than Jeroboam did in some way in sin. Or one of the southern kingdoms, you know, he followed after this God or that God alternatively. Fourteen evil kings and only four good kings. Well, that's discouraging. Sound like our country? Doesn't that actually give us hope, though? The reality is details in Scripture, wherever we see them and however we study them and tease them out from the text, as long as they're objectively there, give us hope in some way because the ancient world matches the present world. Not in technology, but in the human heart. Not in the material and the machinery around us, but in the operations of God. So yeah, righteousness seems to be at a pretty significant disparity with evil. Evil seems to be everywhere. Evil seems to have the upper hand. Evil seems to be winning always. And not just the northern kingdom, which had all bad kings, but even in the southern kingdom. A couple of quick applications. We haven't even gotten to the lesson yet. This is precursor stuff, and it's still good. Okay, a couple of quick applications. Seven of the evil kings were from the northern kingdom. Seven of the evil kings were from the southern kingdom. So nobody has a monopoly on evil. And I just point that out because a lot of times it's easy to scapegoat another political party, another theological position, another social cultural issue, and the the wickedness is over there. Well, Judah had evil kings too. So rather than being essentially loyal to some kind of human-created system or party, the loyalty must be to the Lord, regardless of where we find ourselves. Second application, at first blush, it looks like evil outweighs good at least three and a half to one. But the length of the reigns tells a different story. I'm going to shift back here to another column, the duration of the reigns of the individual kings. Those evil kings, 14 of them, reigned a total of 178 years combined, which is an average of 12.7 years per rule. Okay, 178 years for 14 bad guys, that's 12.7 years. The four good kings reigned a total of 128 years, or an average of 32 years. Interesting. Coincidence? Not really. If we look back to the other good kings that are precursors to the ones we're studying today, we find something similar going on. And that is God does not guarantee. The conclusion that we're supposed to draw from that is not God guarantees us long life if we do what is right and follow him. Why? Because that's not his plan for all of us. We also can't conclude, the, can't conclude the opposite. Ah, if you're wicked, God will cut you off really quickly. What king had the longest reign of any of them? Manasseh. He was wicked. All the way up to almost the end of his life, when Chronicles records he repented and came to the Lord. So, 
Sometimes a person may live an incredibly long, wicked life, and we look at them and have the same cry that Asaph had in the Psalms. Why do I look over here at the wicked and they're prospering and they're flourishing and they seem to have everything and they're healthy and and long-lived and here I suffer so much? So we cannot conclude that all the righteous will have long life or all the wicked will have short life. But what can we conclude? Well, exactly what the Proverbs tell us. It tends to be in the general, aggregated working of God's plan that those who follow the Lord experience His blessing. It takes different forms, different patterns, different hues and different shapes from one person to another. Some of us suffer much more intensely than others, and we do come to the Lord and say, Lord, I'm trying to live for you. Why so much suffering? And God's response to that is elsewhere in Scripture. Listen to Job. Sometimes the suffering is his plan for his own glory and our good. But it is a tendency. The evil kings reigned under 13 years on average. The good kings reigned 32 years on average, almost three times as long. I don't think that that is accidental. Which means that even though we had a whole lot more wicked kings, they actually only reigned for 59% of the time. Those four good kings, just by themselves, of the, of the northern and southern total reign package, and I'm dealing with, again, just Jeroboam II to Zedekiah, those four good kings reigned 41% of the time. God exalted them that much. We'd love to have those figures reversed and have righteousness reign most of the time, But sin is the default position of humanity. We have to recognize that and allow the Lord to lead as he sees fit. Okay? So some interesting background details. That's where we are right now, picking up in the middle of our series, and that's where we're headed, Lord willing, as he gives us opportunity. If we open a news feed on almost any major website right now, CNN, AP News, MSNBC, Fox News, any of your major websites... What are we likely to find? Of course, there are going to be discussions of major events, hurricanes, wars, shocking crimes, the state of the economy, news from abroad. But we'll also find a lot of information regarding the movers and shakers of the world, right? You're going to find a lot of headline articles regarding the President of the United States, the Secretary of State of the United States, major financiers in the United States, other politicians in the United States and rulers around the world like Vladimir Putin, Zelensky, multitudes of others. There's hardly ever an article on those who are quietly engaged in charity. When was the last time you just saw an article that's like, oh, you know, there's this backwater town in Smallsville, USA, and here's a person who's, who's not making a big splash, but he's giving, you know, couple thousand dollars to this charity every year. You're like, so what? I mean, some people give millions of dollars to political action committees. What's one person giving? The ordinary person doing ordinary things, but in the will of God, just is not noticed by this world. True? We don't have big names. No name recognition, in fact, out there. No one have any idea that we even lived. No one will care that we even... That's terrible. Somebody will. Our church family will. 
And of course, the Lord will. But because of the displaced emphasis and value that our world has on those who, whose lives loom large, but for all the wrong reasons, it's easy for us to feel overlooked and uncared for, like God doesn't know what's going on. Possibly we're even useless in the overall scheme of things. But today's passage, and really all the data regarding the remaining kings of Israel and Judah, um, point us towards a different metric of value. So let's read... 2 Kings 14, first few verses here, 23 through 28. In the 15th year of Amaziah, the son of Joash, king of Judah, Jeroboam, son of Joash, king of Israel, yeah, one of those confusing times where we had two Joashes, almost contemporaneously. Jeroboam, king of Israel, began to reign in Samaria, and he reigned 41 years. Wicked king, reigning a long time. And he did that which was evil in the sight of the Lord. He did not depart from all the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, which he made Israel to sin. He restored the border of Israel from Lebohemoth, as far as the Sea of the Arabah, according to the word of the Lord, the God of Israel, which he spoke by his servant Jonah, the son of Amittai, the prophet who is from Gath-Hefer. For the Lord saw that the affliction of Israel was very bitter. For there was none left, bond or free, and there was none to help Israel. But the Lord had not said that he would would blot out the name of Israel from under heaven, so he saved them by the hand of Jeroboam, the son of Joash. Now the rest of the acts of Jeroboam and all that he did and all his might, how he fought and how he restored Damascus and Hamath to Judah and Israel, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Israel? And Jeroboam slept with his fathers, the kings of Israel, And Zechariah, his son, reigned in his place. So what has been happening since Israel turned away from the Lord? Okay, sorry, I forgot to advance that for you. What has been happening since Israel turned away from the Lord? Well, we have the divided kingdom. In blue up there is Israel, the northern kingdom. But 2 Kings 10, which we read last year about this time, is in those days the Lord began to cut off parts of Israel. Hazael defeated them throughout the territory of Israel. For from the Jordan eastward, all the land of Gilead, the Gadites and the Reubenites and the Manassites, from Aror, which is by the valley of Arnon, that is Gilead and Bashan. Israel has been hammered from every side. That particular passage doesn't talk about the Philistines, but the Philistines have not only been attacking Judah, they make incursions towards northern Israel. The Tyrian and Zidonians pushed down from the coastal regions. The Aramaeans, which is talking about here with Hazael, attacks from the northeast and took all the blue territory that you see that's east of the Jordan River, then crossed over and started taking the cities of northern Israel. This is a bad time period for Israel. Israel, in fact, is reduced to a small territory that is about 20% of its original size. I mean, think about that, what that would look like in America. Some enemy, you know, Canada starts attacking America, pushes all the way down in the Ohio central region, Maine, through Massachusetts, New York, Pennsylvania. We're like, ah, good riddance. No, <laughs> these are Americans. These are people and, of course, a lot of fellow churches up there. Meanwhile, Mexico decided to claim California and Texas and Arizona and New Mexico and pushed up. 
And so America is reduced to a little portion here in the southeast. 80% of America has been taken over by a foreign adversary. You say, well, that is pretty significant. And it was so bad in the text we just read is that there is no one to deliver them. There's nobody left. 2 Kings 13, which we read near the end of our season last uh, year, was there was not left to Jehoahaz an army of more than 50 horsemen and 10 chariots and 10,000 footmen, for the king of Syria had destroyed them and made them like the dust at threshing. Dire straits. Then Jeroboam the second comes to power, and everything reverses. And the scriptures tell us with those directions that it gives you from Labo Hamath to the Sea of the Arabah. The Arabah, we believe, is probably down a reference to the Salt Sea. So he pushed back and took all the territory down to the Salt Sea. And Labo Hamath is up near Mount Hermon in the far north. Reconquered all this territory, re-expanded Israel to perhaps depending on whom you read and how they reflect on things, to perhaps the greatest extent the northern kingdom has had since the days of Solomon. That's pretty impressive, isn't it? You get a military commander who starts with an army of 50 horsemen and 10 charioteers, and he whips all the surrounding nations and expands his territory back to this incredible length and and breadth and strength. That's awesome. And yet, how much did we find in Scripture about this man named Jeroboam? He's passed over in Chronicles. Chronicles doesn't even address him or cover him. We literally got 2 Kings chapter 14, verses 23 through 28, and we're done with a 41-year reign of a guy who was apparently a military genius and expanded the kingdom. What does that tell you about God's priorities? What does it tell you about his concern and his care? Given all the restoration of that land, what would the people think of Jeroboam? He had had a slogan, Migah, make Israel great again. And he expanded Israel to you know, his former borders and things like that. What do the people think of him? Woohoo! Yeah, the people would be thrilled. Not necessarily the righteous, but I'm talking about just people in their generic you know, nationality and cultural identity and everything else that's gone. The oppressors are pushed back. Our territory is reconquered. The people would be thrilled. And yet, what's God's attitude about this individual? So let me use another analogy. What do you see in this picture? Now, be, be a little more specific. You say, more specific than mushrooms? No, this is what I mean. Some of you need your eyes checked. Because some of you see that picture and you see food. The rest of us look at that picture and we see fungus. Really bad fungus. Right? It is same picture, radically different perspectives or different attitudes towards the thing that you're viewing. Do you follow? 
people look at a king like Jeroboam and they hold him up and they turn him around and say, glory, power, might, written down in the annals, recorded just left and right, incredibly long reign, one of the longest reigns of any of the northern kings. This man is a force to be reckoned with. And God says, oh yeah, Jeroboam was a king and he expanded the territory and he was wicked and he died. Moving on. Do you understand what the value of that is for us as the people of God? Again, it's so easy for us to look at the wicked and think they have so much power, they have so much going for them, they have so much strength, they have so many resources at their disposal, and God's attitude is they lived, they died, they were bad, moving on. And yet he looks at us with completely different eyes. I had nothing, I did very little, a simple person. And he goes, one of my children... Let me rehearse for you the delights I found in my child. Let me rehearse for you all the mighty works he did for me. And you go, mighty works? Who's he looking at? He says, all the mighty works that he did for me that day. Yeah, I know he sinned, he fell. But that day he fought. He fought against temptation. And he said that my name was worthy to be praised in spite of the allure of the human heart and all of culture around him. That's a powerful work. Eh, military conquest, whatever. Real conquest is defeat of sin through daily trusting oneself to me. So yeah, the Lord holds up his people rather significantly differently. Our text then, and I don't want to be trite with this, but I do want to express even in wording and verbiage, exactly God's attitude towards the wicked. God doesn't think much of the wicked. Say that's very colloquial. Yeah, we would say that about, yeah, I don't think much of that. That's exactly God's attitude towards the wicked. I don't think much of them. So commit to walking in faith and righteousness because that's the person in whom he delights. God does not consider, and we'll move fairly quickly through this material, but God does not consider political power to be noteworthy. The first few verses here, while all the political posturing, military planning, empire expanding, and grandstanding of the world is going on, and it is going on all around us, God is focused on something eternal instead of transitory. The world thinks in Napoleonic terms, even if it's not Waging war with actual cannons, sometimes it's doing so with financial clout or other machinations. But God is focused on things more significant like his word. Did you notice that? We just started our passage. And look already in verse 25. Jeroboam restored the border of Israel from Lebohemoth as far as the Sea of Arabah. And that's like, yeah, that's what we would focus on. Give more attention to that. And what does God immediately turn to? According to the word of the Lord, the God of Israel, which he spoke by his servant Jonah, the son of Amittai. Where did Jeroboam get this power? Where, did it, where was he able to... Exp- he was wicked! Because God saw the desperation of his people and entered in, and the prophet Jonah said, this is a prophecy that's not recorded for us, but apparently the prophet Jonah had said, I'm going to deliver my people right now. 
And there will be some victories. So God is more concerned with His Word than He is with the wicked. By far. No contest. The reason Jeroboam was successful is God had declared it would happen. Okay, So He restored the border of Israel and here focus on according to the Word of the Lord, the God of Israel, which He spoke by His servant Jonah, the prophet. I think this one got in the wrong place. You might want to talk about iron implements and how useful they are right now. Let me see if I can find where that is in my notes. Maybe it is in the right place. Okay, yeah, it is. Okay, here we go. Don't you love that as a teacher? You can do whatever you want. Lose your train of thought, make up a new illustration, and keep going. No. What does this tell us about Jeroboam? That last quote. Oh. That went forward rather than back. Here we go. What does the last quote tell us about Jeroboam? What is he as far as God is concerned? That's what this picture comes into play as. The man is wicked, so he's not a good person in the eyes of the Lord. What is he? He's a tool. He's a rusty tool. He's a blunted, useless, sitting in the back closet, shed, rusty tool. Not going to be valuable for much, except to sell to, at an antique shop maybe, somewhere down the line. And yet the Lord could take a rusty tool and use it, but that's all that Jeroboam was to the Lord. The Lord is concerned second with his people. Note the next passage and what it expresses. The people have been brutalized for a long period of time by their adversaries. They have been savaged, so much so that the army is cut down to the the numbers that we reflected before. But that also means that all the villages have fallen. Because it's the outlying districts that do the raising of all your produce, all your flocks, all your herds, all the grain. And they would bring it into the city. And the people would only go into the city in a time of war, in a time of desperation for protection. But all of these outlying districts have been cut off. Remember that the scriptures had told us that all the land of Bashan, which is Golan Heights and below that, all the fertile regions there across the Jordan River have been cut off. All the pasture lands that the tribes of Manasseh and Reuben and others, when when they came into the land in the first place, they said, we're going to stay over here because we have lots of flocks and herds. We'll go help you conquer the other side of Jordan, but we will stay over here because it's incredible pasture land. And God gave it to them. All of that's cut off. So the people are being destroyed in a racial and religious war that approximates what we would call genocide today, although it's not a small people group inside a nation, so technically we wouldn't assign it with that name. But the people are being wiped out. And the scriptures tell us the Lord looked at the bitterness of his people and he's moved. He didn't look at Jeroboam because Jeroboam was good and empower him because Jeroboam was righteous. He empowered Jeroboam because he promised to deliver his people and because he had compassion on his people. God doesn't think much of the wicked. He thinks much of his word and much of his people. So let's continue on in the text. Actually, we have to go next chapter ahead. We're going to skip the Judean king and fast forward to the next northern king. In the 38th year of Azariah, king of Judah, Zechariah, 
the son of Jeroboam, reigned over Israel in Samaria. Oh, if you thought God was approving of Jeroboam because of a 41-year reign, let's talk about his son. Six months. And he did that which was evil in the sight of the Lord as his fathers had done. He did not depart from the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, which he made Israel to sin. Shalom, the son of Jabesh, conspired against him and struck him down at Ibliam and put him to death and reigned in his place. Now the rest of the deeds of Zechariah, and I go, seriously? He's only been in power six months. What kind of rest of the deeds could he possibly have? That was the same thing that God said about Jeroboam, though, and Jeroboam reigned 41 years. Six months, 41 years, it's all the same if you're a wicked king. The rest of your deeds, whatever. They're written in the book of the Chronicles of the Kings of Israel. This was the promise of the Lord that he gave to Jehu. Your son shall sit on the throne of Israel to the fourth generation. Remember this one? We have to kind of rewind a little bit mentally. Who's Jehu? Jehu. Jehu was a commander of whose armies? Ahab's armies and then Ahab's son Jehoram. So he's he's just a military commander. And a prophet comes up and anoints Jehu privately and says, you're going to be the next king of Israel. And that's when he comes out and says, oh, you know, they, all of his friends chummy in the camp. Ah, oh, what did this foolish guy say that showed up in here? Ha, ha, ha. He goes, ah, oh, you know the guy. And he's nonsensical talk. No, we don't. You tell us. Well, such and so that I was going to be king in Israel. So, oh, long live King Jehu. And they appoint him king on the spot. He goes, all right, if you're with me, make sure nobody escapes to tell it in Samaria. And then he takes off himself and he drives back and he kills the son of Ahab and then he wipes out Ahab's line also in fulfillment of the word of the Lord but the Lord had told Jehu you do what is right I'll continue walking with you but I'll give you four generations four generations and he got four generations When this son of his great-grandson is cut off, the end of Jehu's line comes once again. So this particular section of our passage shows us that God does not consider influential lineage to be noteworthy at all. Everybody raved about Jehu when he came to power. Everybody recognized he was a natural-born leader a whole lot better than the son of Ahab. Everybody appointed him immediately king Jehu was powerful. Jehu was strong. Jehu had a four-generation lineage. But God's attitude towards human lineage is, is not that big of a deal. You know, there are families in America that hold power, that have been holding power in America for 200 plus years. They're connected all the way back hundreds of years ago in America to some original power brokers And they just maintain that power in a small elite group. Yeah, elitists really do exist. (laughs) And the ones who are believers, God honors. The ones who are not believers, eh. Family name, no big deal. There's a family name that is a whole lot more important. Verses 8 through 11 show us that he is concerned with righteousness. So that when a person does evil, the Lord can remove him very quickly. And think nothing of him. 
And yet verse 12 also showed us another fascinating detail. Lest lest we uh, forget the point that we already spoke about, about his word. The Lord is concerned with his word. Right here again. This was the promise of the Lord that he gave to Jehu. This was the promise. Your son shall sit on the throne of Israel to the fourth generation. And so it came to pass exactly as God had said. Which brings us back to mining the scriptures as we ought for what are the promises of God to us. If the promise of God is so valuable that he won't even cut off a wicked line until the four generations pass. If the promise of God is so valuable that even in the midst of a wicked nation, he is willing to empower a wicked person to deliver his people for a time. Then finding out what those promises of God are is rather relevant for us. So when we are in desperate straits and are forgotten... We're not forgotten because we remember that he will never leave us or forsake us. And that is a promise of God. Or we have a promise that the one who began in you a good work will perform it. He will perform it and perfect it at the same time till the day of Jesus Christ. But Lord, I don't have much to offer you. And you look at my life and of course I'm a failure. So certainly I can't be your child if I'm a failure. The one who began the work in you will bring it to completion. Oh, that is great hope. That is great hope. In the midst of our troubles, in the midst of our weakness, in the midst of our wickedness, the promise of God still stands in spite of us and through us because of his own glory. He is ultimately concerned with his own word. But that brings us to the third king today. Still in verse uh, chapter 15. Shalom, the son of Jabesh, conspired against him, that is against Zechariah, and struck him down at Ibleam and put him to death and reigned in his place. Shalom, the son of Jabesh, began to reign in the 39th year of Uzziah, king of Judah, and he reigned one month. Again, so lest somehow we get the mistaken impression that because Jeroboam, he he pulled himself up by his own bootstraps and he worked hard, he became really powerful and he was able to accomplish all those things. His son, six months, the guy who kills his son, one month, and God's attitude towards the wicked is on full display. Then Menahem, the son of Gadi, came up from Tirzah and came to Samaria, and he struck down Shalom, the son of Jabesh, in Samaria, and put him to death and reigned in his place. Now the rest of the deeds of Shalom and the conspiracy that he made, behold, they are written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Israel. God does not consider human conspiracies to be noteworthy. That also is a great comfort. Are there wicked people, you know, I'm not talking about the whole QAnon and that kind of thing, way fringe, but are there wicked people who actually have designs on power to establish themselves in positions with enough connections and enough dirt on just the right people to guarantee their permanent power politically and financially in America? Absolutely. In Russia? Oh, of course. China? Certainly. 
and on and on throughout the nations of the world. Why? Well, that's common throughout all of human history. Go back and read about the Praetorian Guard. You know, for a long time I thought the Praetorian Guard, well, it's just this bodyguard, right, for the, for the Roman emperor. Well, it was in the first century, but as you're transitioning into the second century and beyond, the Praetorian Guard became the deep state. They're not just soldiers. They're the power brokers. They're the kingmakers. They'd kill the emperor when they wanted to and stick another guy in his place. Basically, now make sure you raise our pay and do exactly what we said, because you know what happened to the last guy. We assassinated him, and we'll do the same to you. And there are a lot of really interesting things that happened in those days of Rome and how quickly some of the emperors were clipped through, assassinated by the Praetorian Guard, assassinated by the Praetorian Guard, assassinated one after another after another. Machinations are a part of the wicked human heart. They will never stop this side of eternity till Jesus, well, Jesus comes, he will know what's going on in the human heart, already does, but ruling from Jerusalem will be able to quell all these kinds of machinations. But all the conspiracies of humanity come with an expiration date. They come with an expiration date. So, we just opened some new mustard at our house. You could preach from mustard if you do it right. We opened a new bottle of mustard in our house. You go to the fridge then, right after you use it, and you, you look for a spot to put it. And somehow, you, you were able to throw away the old mustard bottle a couple weeks ago. Now you're opening a new one, you go there, and there's no place left. You know what I'm talking about? Especially in those slots in the door. There's no, there's no space left. Salad dressing, ketchup, mayonnaise, all these other things are in there, and all the bottles take up, and they're all you know fat at the bottom, and then they go like this at the top. Like if you could actually just make that into a perfect cylinder or something, that we could get more in there. But I'm trying to fit something in, so finally I'm taking out dressing and looking at dates. I'm going to get in trouble. Is my wife in here? No, she's she must be in the nursery. Okay, so I can say this. Don't tell. I found something from 2018. (laughs) It's some kind of dressing that we don't actually use, okay? So we had it there for guests. No, we haven't served it to guests recently. (laughs) Stop looking at me like that. But it was from 2018. So what did I do with it? Gone. Mustard in. Uh, you know, the salad dressing out. Perfect, perfect solution. And she's like, wait, 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 wait what, are you, what, are you, what are you throwing away? I'm like, it's 2018. Okay. All right, gone. Wicked humanity has an expiration date. Because our lives are so short and because the wicked go back as far as we can remember and because the wicked are reigning now and because the wicked will be reigning 10 years from now if God tarries. It feels like their conspiracies and their power are undefeatable, inexorable. Humanity will always be under the control of the wicked one and there's no point in this fight. But viewed from God's perspective, he's like, oh yeah, expiration, expiration, toss out, toss out, throw away, one month, six months, even if it's 41 years, it still has an expiration date. And God destroys it. 
So don't be troubled at the conspiracies of the wicked. Don't be caught up in things that unsettle your heart overmuch. And I don't mean to be uninformed. You can be aware of what is going on in the world without being so wrapped up in it that our hearts themselves are knotted up and twisted up. The wicked reign, and I, I can't do anything about it, and I feel like I'm choking because of it. They do reign. Be wise. But work on virtue, because that is what really matters, and God will bring them to an end. And you know what? A day is coming when we'll remember, I, I think we'll remember the time that we went through, and we'll be in eternity, like, yeah, you know, we've been a million years in eternity, and we're like, remember back then, we thought those people were all that, and there was nothing that could be done to bring them down from their power, and now look at them. And we've been reigning with Christ for a million years, and then a billion years, and then a trillion years as eternity stretches on. This is good stuff. They invite counter-conspiracies. And that's why I love to leave the wicked to the wicked. Pray that the Lord deals with them on his timing and on his terms. Because wickedness and all the conspiracies of the wicked invite counter-conspiracies. Why? Because other wicked people want the same power. So they're going to rise up against each other and they're all going to fight and pull each other apart. Let the wicked have the wicked. Stay out of it. Again, participate within our political processes as God has given us opportunity. Be wise, be prudent, but don't worry. God brings the wicked to fight the wicked in ways that so thoroughly destroy them and discredit them that he establishes that he has ultimate power and he is in control. So may I invite you to consider our theme once again. When I hold up an ounce of gold, (laughs) if I could hold up an ounce of gold, right? It's like, if if we were to hold up an ounce of gold, we look at it and say, wow, $2,000 in a single ounce, get one pound. I, we lift weight, you know, some weights that are, well, mine are not that heavy. My sons are getting heavier. <laughs> you think of how much you put on a bench press bar to bench press at 150 pounds and how much would that be worth? And God yawns and says, yeah, asphalt. Asphalt. God doesn't think much of the wicked. Can I invite you to adopt his perspective and live a life that just walks in simplicity of faith and righteousness because that's what's really valuable to him. Father, we're thankful for the testimony of your word. We're thankful that you recounted these stories in exactly the way you did. You captured perfectly your own attitude and mind uh, about the wicked and about your people. So that we are not left in doubt when we see you spending so much time on a life like David's and so little time on a life like Jeroboam's when they reigned about the same length. And so we know that you look down at our lives, simple as they are, unadorned as they are, and yet they are adorned because they're adorned with the gospel of Jesus Christ and they're adorned with the knowledge of your Son. They're adorned with the virtues that the Spirit gives to us. They're adorned with your own presence. So may we have great hope in this week that we live before you and live with our eyes settled in faith and joy. It's in Christ's name we pray, amen.